I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. First impressions can take as little as six seconds to make. But in these fleeting moments, whose amazing stories don't we get to hear? That's where Beyond Six Seconds comes in. Join me, Carolyn Keel, as I uncover stories of life and creativity, triumph and struggle, with a focus on neurodiversity. I'm featuring neurodivergent people whose stories shatter misconceptions, break stigma, and showcase vibrance and diversity. To listen, go to beyond6seconds.net or follow the show in your favorite podcast player. From MCIE. Dr. Mona Delahook wants parents and educators to think about challenging behavior differently, usually when we target behaviors that we want to change. We tend to think, well, if this is good or bad behavior or something that we need to be concerned about, we focus on the behavior, which I view as the tip of the iceberg, right? Just actually a signal of what's going on inside of a child rather than the target. But what if there was a way to look beyond the typical behavior management systems to support learners? The most important environmental aspect is a caring, warm, loving adult who witnesses your distress and who doesn't reinforce you when you're doing something they think is good and takes away their attention when you do something that they believe is attention-seeking or negative. And what about those disability-specific classrooms that districts say are so necessary? Why would we segregate those in our society who are differently wired? What message does that give those children? And how about depriving those children who are deemed as neurotypical of classmates who have different brain wiring? My name is Tim Viegas, and you are listening to Think Inclusive, presented by MCIE. This podcast exists to build bridges between families, educators, and disability rights advocates to create a shared understanding of inclusive education and what inclusion looks like in the real world. For this episode, I talk with Dr. Mona Delahook, author of the books Brain, Body, Parenting, and Beyond Behaviors. We discuss the neuroscience of behavior, 
how parents and educators can move beyond behavior charts and positive reinforcement and a new way to look at using the check-in procedure with learners. Thank you so much for listening. And now, my interview with Dr. Mona Delahook. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Mona Delahook, who is a licensed clinical psychologist with more than 30 years of experience caring for children and their families. She's a senior faculty member of the Profectum Foundation and a member the American Psychological Association. She is the author of Beyond Behaviors, Using Brain Science and Compassion to Understand and Solve Children's Behavioral Challenges, and is a frequent speaker, trainer, and consultant to parents, organizations, schools, and public agencies. She lives and works in the Los Angeles area. She is also the author, which is why she's here, of Brain Body Parenting. So welcome to the Think Inclusive podcast. Oh, thanks so much, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> I'm really excited to have you on. We talked a little bit before we started recording about how Beyond Behaviors was really your book about your experience in education and how misunderstood students who are neurodiverse and the new book Brain Body Parenting is really a parenting book, but I'm really interested in our audience understanding the connection between, you know, how parents focus on solving problems with children and how teachers do. Can you share a little bit about why do parents want to focus on solving problems instead of relationships? Well, it's a really good question. And I think it's something that is a thread in our culture, not only in our schools, but in our parenting and how we view children, we are accustomed, I think, to viewing behaviors as the target. And we tend to think, well, if this is a good or bad behavior, or this is a misbehavior, or, you know, something that we need to be concerned about, that we focus on the behavior, which I view as the tip of the iceberg, right? Just actually a signal of what's going on inside of a child rather than the target, which is where our culture and especially our education system tends to view, especially those behaviors that we would consider challenging. Mm. So that I think was the notion, the paradigm shift that I am suggesting for education and even for parents is that we do look beyond the behaviors to see about that very useful information it provides about the child and be less judgmental about what a behavior means and focusing less on the behavior and more on the child. Yeah. So let me just bring in a a personal story and I'm not sure if I'm going to keep this or not, but I was making breakfast this morning for my nine-year-old and she's the only one who gets up early with me because everyone else is older, middle school and high schoolers. And I made breakfast she did not want to eat it. We have like this menu, you know, monthly menu and it's set, right? I made the breakfast. She didn't want to eat it. And there was a part of me that was like, that stinker. She doesn't want to eat my, you know, I made this breakfast. She doesn't want to eat it. All the work (laughs) and thinking, this is a real breakfast. This doesn't sound like just a piece of like, listen, (laughs) it was you know, I'll tell you what it was. It was an apple cheddar frittata. Okay. Like, oh my come goodness. On. Mona, oh, come you would have wow. loved it. I, okay. I'll order two of those. <laughs> no, okay. No, but seriously, I yeah. was thinking about this and I'm like, yeah. 
I'm like, you know what? It's like, she's not trying to get under my skin. I mean, I know my kid, but she's not like, and, and that it was so funny because I was thinking about your book and just in my experience as an educator, because that kind of stuff happens all the time. Like it doesn't matter if it's breakfast or if it's an assignment you want in to give, you know, like this kid doesn't want to do what I want them to do. Right. So I want to bring in this question and connect it to something that you wrote on social media, because you wrote something that you said in your book was one of the most popular things, right, that you've you've put out on social media. And it's if the ability to control emotions and behaviors isn't fully developed until early adulthood, why are we requiring preschoolers to do this and then punishing them when they can't? So why do you think that resonated with so many people? You know, I I mean, I'm just thinking like, you know, my nine-year-old who was getting upset with me because I wanted her to eat my breakfast that I so dutifully made, you know, like she's not, she's not fully in control of her emotions at six o'clock in the morning. I love that. Yes, yes. Well, let's think of it from a few different angles. And I love your example, honestly, because it would be so easy to personalize refusing to eat a delicious breakfast that was made with love, right? And care to have it feel like, and I know I felt this as a parent a lot, like, oh my gosh, that's just so mean or disrespectful. Are you joking? Like, really like, why are you doing that? (laughs) And the whole idea that we can kind of deconstruct that I know as a parent or a teacher, certain behaviors can make us feel like the person's being disrespectful, or they're not considering our feelings and things like that. But what we don't realize is that underneath the tip of the iceberg of the behavior are so many other factors that are likely influencing those decisions. And so, for example, it could be that inside of that of her body, she was not feeling physically hungry yet, or that her body was still waking up. So even the smells could have triggered something that we call a a safety threat, right? To inside the body is like the smell be like, oh. And so it was a physiological reaction. She wasn't aware of that. And and it came out and like, no, I don't want that. So we can look underneath, we can kind of start to understand that our behaviors and our emotions is a deeply physiological process. It involves our body, but also in regard to that quote that you just read, It's part of our development, the ability Mm. to contextualize and control your emotions and your behaviors is a project that starts from toddlerhood and moves on to really young adulthood, that ability to kind of realize, put all the ducks in a row, have in your mind, be able to say something polite rather than something, which is how you really feel. As we get socialized, we learn how to, to, to have a more sophisticated problem solving, but it's a project. And I think that's why the quote resonated. That was so funny because it was one of the most popularly shared quotes. And I just threw it up there literally within 10 seconds. I was wa- taking a walk and I saw this, these parents trying to, trying to have a toddler do something that was way beyond their skill level. And so I was like, put it on. And sure enough, like 2 million people saw it. So it's, <laughs> I think that a lot of us don't properly understand 
social and emotional development. We have what's called the expectation gap. We think kids can do things when they really can't develop mentally. Sure, they can walk, they can talk. Toddlers look like a legit little mini adult, but they are so unbaked. And that's why when we understand their brain and body development, we can see that we can expect these behaviors rather than dread them. And and that applies to children that are not on a typical path of development too, correct? A million percent. And, and just emphatically so, because that's the other part that our, our education system doesn't get very well. And I'd like to first say that I, there is no blame and no shame intended. The educators that I work with and I know intend well and are incredible people. They have been our heroes through the pandemic. So I have nothing but respect for those individuals and helping our children and our students. But from a, from a knowledge standpoint, our field of education and even the field of psychology, I think, doesn't understand the profound impact of individual differences and how those individual differences, such as brain wiring differences, perceptual differences, movement differences, all those things that our neurodivergent children and students and teenagers and adults have, which makes them special and makes them unique, oftentimes are judged as inappropriate behaviors or behaviors that are misunderstood. And I think at the, at the worst end of it, punished. Mm. And that's what I would like to see shifted in our education system. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get back to brain body parenting. Cause one of the the phrases you talk about is the platform. And I thought that was really interesting. So what do you mean by the platform? Yeah. <clears throat> so I think we're more accustomed to think about our children's thinking brain. And there's been a lot of, of great parenting books out there about the brain and including the brain in how we think about parenting, which is so great. And <laughs> I am adding that the brain gets its operating instructions from the body. So I coined the term after Dr. Stephen Porges, who's a neuroscientist that I, that I really value and, and use his, his theory in, in my work, is that the actual platform that launches our behaviors, ours and our children's and our emotions and our sensations, is the brain and body. So the platform is a shorthand for our brain and body connection. And that is always in charge because we're not just a brain and we're not just a body, we're always both. Mm -hmm. So I'm bringing into the parenting literature this idea that if we don't understand our children's nervous systems and our own, we're missing the full picture. If we're just focusing on behaviors, we are really, again, looking at the the behavior as the target and not the signal. And it can kind of mess up our relationships. It can kind of make us feel certain ways about our children. I know that happened to me when I had one of my children whose behaviors I didn't understand. They seemed either odd or, or disrespectful. And until I, until I knew better, I, I just, the relationship was, was kind of on, on a, sh a shaky foundation. So we can learn so much from this platform. 
Yeah. I loved how you said that the behavior, a lot of times we see behavior as the target, right? Instead of, oh, now I forget what you said. Behavior as uh, the, the target. Same, yeah. The same. Thank you. Signal. Yeah. So yeah. 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 Because I'm just thinking about it as if, as educators are listening to this, you know, we have behavior targets <laughs> all the time, like, like <laughs> IEP goals, right? Observable, yes. something that's observable. And that is what we're taught to look for, right? <laughs> Yes. Not signals. Right. <laughs> it, you hit the nail on the head. Exactly. Our whole, and, and not just education, our, really our whole culture is around looking at behavioral management, behavioral control. And especially in our education system, because teachers are taught behavioral technologies, right? Those are, those are our teacher's best toolkit, you know? behavior charts, explanations on posters of classroom rules, and, and teaching children what's expected and all that. And there's nothing wrong with teaching children what's expected or having rules posted on the classroom. But what I do have a problem with is things like behavior charts, where, you, where children or teachers track behaviors by either colors or going up and down when we are working outside of that knowledge that you don't want to punish a signal that is a stress behavior because those stress behaviors that our children do that that get on iep goals that people think are intentional bad behavior like bothering other students or trying to escape from the classroom or making loud noises those aren't done by by students trying to make life miserable for their peers or their teachers those shouldn't be the object of our behavior plans those should be compassionately understood as the adaptations and protection of the nervous system for that student's body and brain for their platform and that's the paradigm shift in how we view behaviors that hasn't taken root yet in our education system mm. A trend in modern applied behavior analysis is to really look for those underlying sources, you know, for challenging behavior. Is what you're proposing in this parenting book and in Beyond Behaviors, is that really different than the modern ABA framework? I'm really curious. I've heard the phrase modern ABA framework. And so it's, it's, I, I wonder about what that actually means. And I have no idea because I yeah. don't know. I've never heard of it until I wrote it in the question. So if you, so if oh, you, cool. yeah, so, so I'm assuming, <laughs> yeah, I'm assuming it's a way that ABA may be trying to update their their databases and <laughs> and <laughs> possibly so. yeah. possibly also with the growing wave of the neuroscience that is showing us that behaviors are signals and digging deeper but boots on the ground mm -hmm. i'm in schools i am observing in classrooms i'm in preschools i'm in special ed aba run schools observe as an observer because of my patients are all in those schools. I don't really see a difference between the ABA I see, see now and the ABA I saw a decade ago. When you're focusing on behaviors, you're focusing on behaviors. And if a child is, for example, 
not paid attention to when they do a certain behavior or when they are considered that they're not going to be reinforced or they're not going to be not going to get a sticker or add a boy or that's great unless they do x to me if that's still behavior management and behavior management doesn't consider the internal life of the child their feelings their self-concept their emotions their physiological process. In other words, how distressed are they inside? How much can they show you that distress? And what are your techniques doing to that child's distress level? Mm. Such as when children are put in like calm down rooms that are supposed to be these nurturing places where children can feel safe. Well, the calm down rooms that of children that I have seen are where an adult will go with them to a room and not talk to them because they don't want to reinforce a quote unquote bad behavior. So with all due respect for everybody working with children, people are telling us about what it felt like to be the recipient of a behavior management program. Those are the students who are now teenagers and young adults that I've personally worked with that tell me what it was like for them. So I, since I'm, I am not neurodivergent in that way, I need the information from the experts. And to me, the experts aren't the teachers. They are the students themselves who went through it. The effort that educators put into crafting an environment, like, and I'm talking physical, a physical environment to reduce the stress and make children and students feel safe, their energy would be better put into building and cultivating a relationship as opposed to a physical environment. Is that right? I love the way you said that a hundred percent because relationships are the most important part of the physical environment. Now, certainly, you know, noise canceling walls. I've been in certain schools where they have pad have like walls that absorb noise Mm -hmm. and background and foreground. Sure. Those are some great aspects of creating an environment. But the most important environmental aspect is a, is a caring, warm, loving adult who, sees, who witnesses your distress and who doesn't reinforce you when you're doing something what they think is good and takes away their attention when you do something that they believe is attention-seeking or negative. So I love that you just brought that up. Yeah, We could spend our resources on human accommodations first. That doesn't require any extra money. That doesn't require an architect or funds to build new classrooms. It it requires human beings with a lens shift away from behavior management and towards compassion and what we call co-regulation. So do you think that that is more likely to happen in, well, I, I, I feel like I'm leading the witness here. (laughs) <laughs> but Go ahead. do you feel like that this, this co-regulation developing and cultivating relationships, and I'm really mostly talking about students who are neurodivergent, but you know, as an organization where we are promoting inclusive schools, we're promoting students in classrooms with their typical peers. We are yeah. not promoting self-contained and segregated environments for students with disabilities. And I'm just wondering in your professional opinion, you know, which is more likely to 
for these relationships to happen? Well, in my professional opinion, it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Why would we segregate those in our society who are differently wired? What message does that give those children? And how about depriving what those children who are deemed as, as neurotypical, depriving them of classmates who have different brain wiring? It's just, it, it's the question, I think, it, you aren't really leading the witness. You're just, I'm just thinking from a logical perspective, segregation is that good for our culture in general? And I think not. Mm -hmm. So, but your question is, is a good one. Where is it more apt to happen? And I think that relationships at this point, and this might be a bold statement, but again, I'm, and I'm coming from it in a bit of an advocacy position because I'm an observer. I'm not part of the education system. I'm a, I'm a consultant to students who are in it. But in our education system, we are hyper-focusing on behavior management and under-focusing on building relational safety. And the neuroscience is unequivocal that relational safety is the foundation of resilience. It's the foundation of physical and mental health. And why in the heck are our special ed students not given relational safety? Why are they given behavior management as the, as the top end approach, which by the way is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And especially our students with the worst, you know, the worst or the most quote unquote, air quote, egregious behavioral challenges are given the most detailed and, and overarching behavior plans, which again, go back to the fact that we are not looking at human beings who are in distress and what their nervous system signals are and agitated behaviors, fight or flight behaviors, hitting, kicking, self-harm, all of those behaviors are a sign of a human being in distress, not a human being acting out to make other people's lives difficult. Mm -hmm. So our whole mentality, I think, is, is about a couple hundred years old, in how we view behavioral challenges. And that was my purpose of, of writing Beyond Behaviors is that I, I think it's time we shift away from that. Fantastic. Uh, don't want us to run out of time with the, with the Zoom. So I think if we exit and then come back in on the same link, we'll have about you know 20 minutes before you need to hop off. Does that Perfect. sound good? Yeah, that, okay. those questions are great, by the way. Oh, thanks. Yeah, good. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Really enjoying that conversation. Yeah, good. All right. So we leave and then we come right back in. Exactly. Okay. Use the same link. Okay. All right. Okay. You live in Southern California, correct? Yeah. So I grew up in Arcadia. Oh my gosh, you're kidding. Yeah. I grew oh, up in Arcadia off of, off of Longden. Do you know where that is? Yeah. My office is on South First Avenue. Yeah. Okay. Oh. I lived on 4th, on South 4th. Oh, Fourth. my gosh. Yeah. That's over by Carl's Jr. I, I walk over there for, <laughs> for lunch. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly where that is. Now, yeah. Where do you live now? I live in Georgia. I live in near, oh. near Atlanta. Wow. Yeah. 
(laughs) Did you grow up there? I grew up in Arcadia. Yeah, I went to Arcadia Christian School, which is actually on Santa Anita. Yes. And and then I went to Maranatha High School, which is now in Pasadena. It used to be in Sierra Madre. Okay, Tim. Yeah. I went to Maranatha High School. No, you didn't. (laughs) We're alumni? What? It's a secret. I don't tell anyone that. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. That, that's freaky. Yeah, I feel okay. I feel so connected with you, Mona. Oh, honestly, <laughs> okay, we're all thrown off now. This is hysterical. <laughs> I was not expecting that. I thought you were just going to say, "Oh yeah, Arcadia, the the you know the Arboretum, the Peacocks." Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't. I've never met anyone who's ever heard of Maranatha High School, so. And that's just really, this is really amazing. Oh, that's great. That's great. Okay. Okay. All right. Back to, back to work. So something that I thought was really interesting about brain body parenting was the pathways. And I don't mean any disrespect in, in that they reminded me of zones of regulation, but they're not, they're definitely not the same thing, but the, the colors and the pathways I think are really useful. I really think that educators could learn a lot from them. So could you briefly explain the pathways? Oh, thank you. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the zones of regulation because a lot of teachers are familiar with the zones of regulation and it's a great cognitive behavioral teaching tool. I was at a a gathering a few years ago and I met the the co-creator of the zones of regulation. And I want to make it very clear that these colors that I'm talking about were developed years before the zones of regulation by someone named Connie Lillis, a colleague of mine. The colors that I talk about in, in brain body parenting and beyond behaviors are standing colors for the three main pathways of the autonomic nervous system. And those were were developed in 2009. And the zones of regulation is a cognitive behavioral teaching tool, completely different. And and truly, I guess my my caution on the zones of regulation is that I really think that they are being oversold to our vulnerable populations because they are they are operating outside of the fact that self-regulation is not a learned experience. It is an embodied experience that happens through relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that the zones of regulation have been misinterpreted as a behavior management tool sometimes. So you're having, oh, where are you right now? And of course, children feel like green is better. Like they they make that up themselves. Like, oh, I'm green or, oh no, my color's changing. You know, that's bad. So I have a very big caution about that. Mm -hmm. And also a caution, again, with all due respect to teachers. And I know, I know you, you have the best of intentions, but behavior charts serve to dysregulate more students than they, than they serve to regulate. So I'm really glad you brought that in. So the three pathways of the autonomic nervous system are from a theory called the polyvagal theory, which kind of now we go into neuroscience, but my database is translating neuroscience into practical use because I think it's so it's it's good for us to know how the brain and body work. And so the three pathways really quick are the green pathway, which in a, you don't have to worry about the scientific name, the ventral vagal, but the green pathway is where our nervous system is socially engaged, 
It is feeling calm. It is able to learn. This is where children play. It's where we can ask them to stretch a little bit. And that nervous system, again, it's that we don't choose these. It's automatic. It's the automatic or autonomic nervous system. When the body is perceiving safety on a very, very primitive primal level, you are in the green. Now, we cannot always live in the green because A, we're not robots, and B, the world isn't perfectly predictable, so that we have another nervous system, another pathway that launches beyond our control when our nervous system detects any form of threat. And it's, in, it's threat that's to the individual. So again, it's invisible and it could be something as subtle as a noise or a smell or a hearing a siren many, many miles away. And that's the red pathway. And that's commonly known as the fight or flight response where you will see those behaviors related to movement, eloping, running out of, running out of a classroom, hitting, kicking, screaming. Those kinds of behaviors are signs when they are accompanied by the physiology like sweaty hands, erratic heartbeat, racing thoughts, etc., of a human in the red pathway where they need to move and they're not purposefully having these kind of behaviors. They're being driven by that nervous system, which is known as, as an adaptive protective nervous system. And then finally, the third color blue is when human beings detect, either detect a very large amount of stress so that they kind of freeze, or they're kind of had a lot of toxic stress over a lot of period of time, and they begin to just kind of withdraw and lose some hope. So those would be kids who, uh, who just sit around, don't play, don't engage, don't look through you rather than at you, and maybe very low energy, low movement, as opposed to the high movement of the red pathway. Mm-hmm. So we can think of these three pathways and look at students' bodies, look at our own. We, they're human pathways. If you are feeling kind of hopeless for our down in the dumps or very immobilized, Believe me, a lot of teachers and therapists and parents are feeling this due to the extended stress of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So be careful, be gentle, watch out for your mental, physical health. Those signs are ones to pay attention to. Get help if you need it. And then add to that, add to your body budget, add things to help you feel better because you'll be a better teacher or parent. You'll feel more regulated yourself. Right. And you do give some suggestions about self-care. I know that that's kind of a big topic, you know, for parents and educators, but I wanted to ask you about check-ins because I think timeouts have, you know, I don't think, I think they're still being used, you know, but they're certainly not as popular as they were, especially in parenting, but you're, you're suggesting a check-in and maybe a more robust check-in than just like, Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. So, yeah. So what, is, so what does that look like? What does that look so like? This is what we do. This is what we do in the check-in and it's related to those colors. Actually, the bottom line really is understanding our nervous system and the child's nervous system in the moment. That is the best guide we have, not their behaviors, but their nervous system. So we can use those colors for the check-in. And the, the first thing we do, the first step of the check-in is number one, check in with yourself. Are you red, blue, or green? If you, the parent, you, the teacher, are in the red or you're immobilized in the blue, you're not going to be able to help students or your children very well because our nervous systems transmit from one human to another. 
A, and B, your behaviors, if you're in the red, you may do or say things that you later regret because you're compelled to move or to yell or to scream and not to use your, your words and your thoughtfulness. So check yourself. If you're in the green, good to go. If you're red or blue, do something to calm yourself if you're in the red <clears throat> or to upregulate yourself if you're in the blue. Make sure the child is safe. And, and then step one happens because you can't pour from an empty cup. We can try, but again, nervous systems are very intelligent. And our students and our kids, first of all, react to how we are rather than what we say. So milliseconds before you process what the words an adult are saying, you're processing their emotional tone. Mm. So step number one, check yourself. Step number two, check the child's color. Are they red, blue, or green? If they're green, you can use some nice logic. You can set some good limits and start to problem solve with your words. But if they're in the red or blue, you stabilize. You don't go to a lot of words. You use what we what we call in the books as your, your private toolbox for each child. And I have parents and caregivers actually go through pages of tabulating that private toolbox because it's different for each child mm -hmm. of what will work. But once you have that in your, in your position, then you go to, th to step three, which is you work together. You work from the body up to the brain down and the body up, meaning you, you help stabilize that child's platform. You have them feel safe again. And then all you, you really don't need all those behavior management techniques because you've organically helped the child self-regulate through this process of human interaction relationships. It sounds like when you go through these steps that the child learns through co-regulation, how to do this themselves. That's right. And it's, we call it an embodied experience because you're not teaching it, you're embodying it, you're modeling it, mm. you're doing it. And that's the most profound shift for children is when they experience it rather than learn it. And I know sometimes that's hard for teachers because we, teachers want to teach. I love that. But you can't re truly, truly, from a brain-body perspective, you can't truly teach self-regulation. It has to be experienced. I think that is a mind shift. That, yeah. Because, yeah, we're teachers. We want to teach, you know, we want to we wanna create goals. You know, we want to create targets in observable, measurable <laughs> yes god bless you all <laughs> yes we and there's nothing wrong with that right. there's nothing wrong with wanting to have targets and having things be measurable and observable but we can still do that in a, in in this relationship-based approach so last question and then we'll, we'll get to where people can find your work this seems like it's great for younger kids who are still figuring out who they are and how to self-regulate but how much does this apply to older children, adolescents, teenagers, and even adults? Well, that's the, that's the cool thing is that when you, when we understand social and emotional development, it's really developmental. It's not chronological. So it's not our actual age. It's really a human process. So it'll look different. So the way you co-regulate with a toddler will look different than the way you co-regulate with a 10 year old or a teenager, right? Or even your, your partner, your spouse, <laughs> because we can use these, these tools in all of our relationships. 
where is my nervous system? Where is this other person's nervous system? Are we, are we at a place where we can actually problem solve or, or do we have to go to somewhere more basic and stabilize first? So I think it's, it looks different, but absolutely we can, we can apply it across the age span. Where can people find brain body parenting and where can people follow your work? Uh, well, my website, monadelahook.com, I have blog and lots of resources there. So people can go there and on Facebook and Instagram, Dr. Monadelahook and Twitter. And um, yeah, Brain Body Parenting, both books are available on Amazon and Brain Body Parenting is available at most bookstores, Barnes and Noble. And I've heard it's at Target and Walmart. So <laughs> it's available. All right. All right. Well, no, uh, I Please go out and get Beyond Behaviors and Dr. Delahook's newest Brain Body Parenting. Follow her work. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Dr. Mona Delahook, for being on the Think Inclusive podcast. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Think Inclusive is written, edited, and sound designed by Tim Viegas and is a production of MCIE. Original music by Miles Kredich. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, here are some ways you can help our podcast grow. Share it with your friends, family, and colleagues. And if you haven't already, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Special thanks to our patrons, Melissa H., Veronica E., Sonia A., Pamela P., Mark C., Kathy B., Kathleen T., Jarrett T., Gabby M and Aaron P for their support of Think Inclusive. Another way you can help support Think Inclusive is to become a patron. We are just a few patrons away from producing an additional monthly episode only on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash thinkinclusivepodcast and become a patron today. For more information about inclusive education or to learn how MCIE can partner with you in your school or district, visit MCIE.org. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for your time and attention. And remember, inclusion always works. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.